really fascinating article this past week about art forgery. And I don't even know what made me read the article. I'm not, I don't know that much about art. I'm not a forger. I don't know what made me read it. But a uh, really, really fascinating article. It talked about how uh, forgeries, like famous paintings, are becoming more and more sophisticated and harder and harder to spot, harder to tell the real from the fake. And uh, uh, in fact, one museum in France had this big exhibit of uh, the private collection of the Prince of Liechtenstein. I didn't know there was a Prince of Liechtenstein, but apparently he's quite an art collector. He had this big uh, exhibit on display. And halfway through the exhibit, the police came and they confiscated one of the paintings. It was a fake. They didn't even know it. And they took it for evidence and everything. So uh, just crazy. Uh, the whole article was talking about how difficult it is to spot fake from the real thing. And uh, they talked about this person named James Martin, who's an expert in this field. And he told the story of one painting that he was investigating from 1932. And he gave it a good uh, investigation, the first pass, everything looked legit, looked like the real deal. But the, uh, the history that came with it, the history of ownership that was accompanying this painting was a little sketchy, he thought. So he thought, well, I'm just going to give it one more go. And so he looked at it under a microscope, and he said he spent most of the day just looking at little dime-sized segments of the painting all day long till his eyes started to dry out, you know, and he's looking for anything out of the ordinary, uh, something like uh, dust or hair, an insect wing embedded in the paint, anything that would give him some clues about this. Did the dirt look like it was smeared on deliberately, you know, to try to fake somebody out? And the painting checked out in like every category. But finally, about two-thirds of the way down, as he's scanning it, he found this little fiber, little fiber like a clothing fiber, and it's just attached to a little piece of blue paint. And so he took a scalpel, and he scraped that fiber off, and he examined it further, and it turns out it was polypropylene, uh, uh, not a fabric that was around in 1932. And so uh, he figured out that's how it was a fake. Apparently, the person who forged it was wearing like a polar fleece jacket or something like that. So it was that good of a forgery. That's what it took to be able to spot the fake versus the real. And the whole article is full of stories like this. So interesting. But, but the most interesting part to me was one quote from an art collector. This, uh, this collector, he said, hey, I'm not really worried about if this is real or if it's fake. He said, the forgeries are so good. I'd buy one of those, right? Uh, it was just as good as the real to him, worth millions to this guy. It was regardless of whether it was fake or real, he didn't care. He just wanted the art. So there you go. I don't know. But uh, you know, last week we, we started this series called Wildfire, A Journey Through the Book of Acts. And uh, the Book of Acts traces the story of the beginning of the church. And in this series we're going to look at a variety of different moments from the Book of Acts and, and glean some valuable lessons. There's all kinds of different things we can learn about different topics. And today we're going to look at one of the stranger passages in the Bible. And it's, uh, that's really saying something, because it's a book full of strange stories, you know? I mean, there's talking donkey. There's dead people coming back to life. There's some crazy stuff that happens in the Bible. And so, uh, and yet our passage today is really one of the stranger moments. And it's strange in part because of what happens in the story, but it's strange also because it's so foreign to our lives. 
I mean, the story we're looking at today, it's the story of Pentecost. In case you don't know, it's, uh, it's a crazy story. The disciples of Jesus are all gathered together, and the Holy Spirit comes to them. And the way it comes is very dramatic. Uh, these tongues of fire come down and land on people, and they start talking in languages that they've never studied before. It's a dramatic, really wild story. And, and we read stories like this, and, and uh, we have to admit this kind of stuff just doesn't happen to us. And we're not sure what to make of that. Uh, does that mean that we're just desensitized, like it could be happening if we were paying more attention? Uh, if we were doing something differently, we'd experience this kind of stuff? Uh, maybe we're just too numb or too distracted to be able to really experience the Holy Spirit in this kind of a way. And maybe we're not accessing the Spirit in the way we should. Uh, maybe we're doing something wrong or we're not doing something right that we should be that will allow us to have this kind of dramatic experience. And I've called the message this morning, Catching Fire, Catching Fire, because really that's what we're after. We want to get more of the, the Holy Spirit, that wildfire. We want to see Him work in our lives. We want to catch fire, right? And, and, and chasing after that, though, we run the same kind of risk as these art collectors. How do we know if what we're getting is the real deal or if it's fake, just uh, a fake God-like experience that, that gives us all the right feelings but doesn't really give us what we're after. And, and maybe we're like the one collector who just doesn't care. We're just chasing after the experience just for the sake of feeling like we're connected to God in some meaningful way. But is that the right way to think? I mean, should we be seeking out this kind of amazing experience in our lives? Should we be longing for this kind of a thing? Or maybe there's something else we should be looking for. Some people chase after this kind of thing, trying to replicate it over and over in their lives. And some churches would say you're not even saved if you don't have this kind of Holy Spirit experience. And while that's not right, it does raise the tension that this kind of experience presents. I mean, should we be experiencing the Holy Spirit in these dramatic kind of ways? And in a sense, all these questions, all this tension around this weird event in Acts chapter 2, it all falls under the umbrella of really one big question. How do we hear from and then respond to the Holy Spirit? How do we hear from and respond to the Holy Spirit? If the Holy Spirit is, is unchanged, he's the same uh, for these guys way back then as he is for us now, then the difference maybe isn't in God's Spirit, the difference is in us. So how do we hear from, and respond to the Holy Spirit. Well, this amazing story, this strange story in the book of Acts, it's a unique event. Nothing like it's ever happened before. And as far as I know, nothing quite like it has ever happened since. I mean, I'm not going to put God in a box. Maybe uh, he shows up how he wants to. But, but I'm going to say that this event that we're going to look at together, it's a unique event in the history of the world. And yet from this unique one-of-a-kind incident, we can learn some universal principles that can guide us even today. I want to share a pathway, six steps in a pathway that help us understand how we can hear from and respond to the Holy Spirit. And we're going to walk down this path together one step at a time and see how this unique event helps us craft a pathway that we can use any time that we want to engage God and, and hear from Him. And whether that's making a big decision or navigating a difficult relationship or just wanting our own relationship with God to be more vibrant and, and, and alive. And so let me just encourage you, open up your Bible to Acts chapter 2. 
We're going to work our way through almost the whole chapter. And so find Acts chapter 2. You can just leave your Bible open. We'll be back and forth in it. So uh, we're going to start down this pathway. And step one, step one begins at the place where the apostles themselves begin. Look with me at verse 1. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So step one's really simple. Uh, it starts with us all together. The apostles are gathered together literally, but they're also together spiritually. They're unified. Jesus had, had promised the apostles that the Holy Spirit would come, and he told them to wait for it. Don't do anything until that time. And so the apostles have done that. <coughs> they're waiting. And chapter 1 tells us there's 120 people gathered together. So they're waiting, and they're praying, and they're probably having to wash a whole lot of dishes. I mean, that's a lot of people to feed. And, uh, and yet they're gathered. They're all together. And they don't have any idea what's about to happen, because nothing like it's ever happened before. So they're all together, and there's this sense of anticipation, excitement in the air. They're, they're anxious about what's going to happen next. It's, it's kind of like us. I don't know if you sense the same kind of things that I do, but we're a church that's, that's waiting, that's in this time. We, we're anticipating our future. We know something exciting is coming, and that's wonderful, but we can learn from the early church in a time when they knew that something or someone was coming, but they didn't exactly know what the future is going to look like, the first thing they did was they committed to being all together. Unity, that's step one. And without that unity, they might have missed out on God's plan. If they were scattered around doing whatever, they would have missed it. But they're all together. And so right here, I think that's a valuable lesson for us. Step one is unity. And step two, we could take uh, step two from the example of the apostles again. Uh, step two, it's not explicit here in chapter two. We've got to look back at chapter one. We can see what they're doing as they're all together. Look back with me at chapter one, verse 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So they're awaiting this promise of the Holy Spirit. They're all together, and they're constantly in prayer. They're devoting all their time and their energy to prayer. Prayer is step two. And last week we said that prayer is the fuel that ignites the Holy Spirit, that ignites this wildfire. The apostles are devoted to prayer, and I believe that, that the amazing presence of the Holy Spirit was really a, a direct response to their commitment to prayer. They're anxious, they're anticipating the future, uh, and, and I think their prayers probably reflected that. I mean, what are they praying for? I don't have any idea, but they knew what Jesus had told them. They're going to be his witnesses. They're going to witness to the truth about Jesus. They knew they were going to be spreading his kingdom. And I can only guess their prayers reflected anticipating that, that, that kind of outward focus. So here we are, right? Two steps along the path. So far, so good. We're able to do the same kind of things that these apostles are doing. And nothing in their experience so far is that much different from us. We practice unity, uh, being all together both physically and spiritually. And, and we pray, we can do those things. But, but things are about to get wild. Things are about to get crazy. A, a fire is about to break out. Let's take a look at the rest of the story. Step three. This is where things get interesting. We've got the foundations of step one and step two, being united, being committed to prayer. And then step three, that's where we see God respond. And this is also where we see our own experience really diverge from the experience of the apostles. So let's just read what happens next. Look with me at Acts 2. We're going to start back in, in verse 1. 
When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. I don't know how much wine you have to have to start speaking a different language, but don't try this at home, I guess, you know. But. So the apostles are all together, step one. They're devoted to prayer, step two. And then the Holy Spirit comes, God responds, and as a result of that, they see amazing things happen. But like we said, this is where our experience really diverges from theirs, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a bad thing because this moment is purposefully unique. It's not necessarily a moment to be replicated. Like, like great art, it shouldn't be copied. In fact, if we try to replicate this moment, we really only serve to cheapen it. If we're only chasing thrills and not really trying to catch fire, then we're misguided. This is a moment that God himself ordained so that the apostles could be empowered by the Holy Spirit and so that the message of the gospel could go out to all kinds of people. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't that the same desire God has for us, that we would be empowered by the Spirit and that the message of gospel could go out to all kinds of people? Well, yeah, yeah, it's the same. So why should our experience be any different from this one? Well, it's different because for them it's the first time. It has to be dramatic and visible because it's the first time it's ever happened. This is the beginning of the church. It's a huge transition point in the way that God deals with the world and works in the world. So it has to be different. It has to be dramatic and visible. So there's no confusion. Nobody can say, well, I didn't see anything. But see, for us, things are different. Because for us, the Holy Spirit isn't coming in a huge, visible way. Things are different because the church has already been established. We're not living something brand new that needs to be visibly and dramatically seen. We're living in a time when God's Spirit is already at work in the world through people. So things are going to be different for us, and they're going to be more subtle, less outwardly visible. They get this this outward sign that the Holy Spirit had come, but for us, we generally get an inward reality. Not to say that our experience is less, it's just different. It makes me think of the old commercial, a really old commercial. Anybody remember Madge, the palm olive lady? Yeah, uh, Madge was in a series of commercials for palm olive dish soap, right? And she was on a mission to tell people how they could wash dishes and still end up with silky soft hands, right? And her tagline, the slogan was, softens hands while you do dishes, palm olive, right? Well, old Madge, she's on her mission, and she's not just telling people about palm olive. She's showing them how well it worked. And so she's talking about how great palm olive is, and people don't believe her, and she'd always say the same thing. Remember what she said? 
you're soaking in it. And sure enough, people look down and their hands are covered in silky soft palm olive lotion, right? You're soaking in it. That was the catchphrase. Well, that's us. That's our experience with the Holy Spirit. You're soaking in it. If you're a believer in Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you. You're soaking in it. The Holy Spirit is filling up this room. And yet we don't hear a sound like a rushing violent wind. We don't see tongues of fire coming down from the sky. Our experience is not necessarily going to be outward and visible and unmistakable, but it's inward. It's not less, it's just different. We don't need to worry about catching fire because that wildfire's already caught us. It's in us. Which makes it that much harder for us to listen to and to respond to the Holy Spirit. I mean, for these apostles, they had this dramatic experience. Suddenly they're speaking a language they never knew before. It's unmistakable what's happening. They spent all this time waiting for the Holy Spirit as Jesus promised, and now they're like, oh, this is what we've been waiting for. For us, because it's this internal thing, this invisible thing, it's a lot harder for us to discern, harder for us to hear from and respond to the Holy Spirit. And that's why I think it's a challenge for so many of us. Everybody wants to have this amazing, outward, Holy Spirit experience, so we know that God is with us. But the reality is, we're constantly in the presence of the Holy Spirit. You're soaking in it. Our heads are on fire. We don't even know it. But sometimes the Holy Spirit, he does show up in visible, dramatic ways. Sometimes today things happen that are very similar to the kind of things we see in the book of Acts. Like I said, I'm not going to put God in a box. He can work in the world. He can show up however he wants. But for most of the time, most of our experience, the work of the Holy Spirit is just like it is right now. It's quiet. It's unassuming. Working behind the scenes, working through people. So step three, where God responds, it could be a little tricky. It doesn't always show up for us the way it shows up for the apostles here. It could sometimes be hard to know when God responds. And that's why the rest of the steps help us. They help because our experience diverges from the apostles here in step three, but we can come back together in the next step, step four. So after the Holy Spirit comes, after God responds, notice what happens. Look with me at verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. So as this dramatic event unfolds and the experience becomes verified, it's measured up against something, something significant. Peter begins to understand that what's happening is he's happened, he measures it up against Scripture. And even though the experience is different, our experience with the Spirit is often internal, not so visible as what happens here. We can still follow the example of Peter in this step. He uses the Bible to make sense of what's happening. He uses the Bible to understand what God is doing. And so step four, we measure our experience against God's Word. Because God's Word is true. Jesus himself says, he's praying to the Father, he says, your Word is truth. So we have a standard of truth, a standard of what God desires to see in the world. 
And there's a couple of things worth noting that Peter mentions. He quotes from this Old Testament prophet Joel, and he realizes that the things Joel prophesied about are coming true. He realizes this very strange experience that he's living in is something that God had already predicted in the Bible. So he begins to understand his experience through what God has already revealed in his word. He tells the crowd of Jews that are listening, he said, let me explain this to you. And he goes on to explain, he says, this, what's happening now, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So he explains their experience by measuring it against God's word. And uh, just a side note, an important side note here, in this prophecy, Joel says, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. He says, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit. And if you were here last week, we talked about one of the themes we'll explore through this summer, this journey through Acts, is the role of women. And I just want us to notice here, the spirit comes on men and women in what seems to be equal measure. Women are given this ability to prophesy, the same as men, so that's an important thing to take note of, a meaningful little passage here. So, so step four, we measure our experience against God's word. And even though our experience with the Holy Spirit could be the more confusing and more challenging than what we see in Acts 2, we do have an advantage over them because we have even more of the Bible than they did. They didn't have the New Testament yet, but we do. So we've got even more scripture to measure our experience against. And that's a good thing because this step, this is what helps take the mysticism out of the process. This is where we so often get tripped up. We think that, that listening to the Spirit or following the Spirit's leading is something freaky and mystical, but uh, it involves like speaking in tongues, but it doesn't have to do that. This step four, it takes the freakiness out of it because we have a standard by which we can measure what happens. If we sense the Spirit is leading us in a certain direction or the Spirit wants us to do something or say something or not do something, how do we discern? How do we know what's right? We can measure what we're feeling and sensing against God's Word. Is what we're sensing in line with what God has already revealed or is it contrary? And this is such a crucial step, but it's so often overlooked because, I mean, what's the thing that you hear all the time? You've said it, I've said it, you know, well, I just feel like God wants me to whatever, right? We just default to our feelings. I feel like God wants me to do this, or I feel like God's telling me to say no. But if all we're doing is evaluating the Holy Spirit's guidance against our feelings, then we're doing ourselves wrong. We've got to measure it against God's word. Not just our feelings, because our feelings lie to us. We've got to measure something against the standard of truth. It's God's word. Is what we're feeling and what we're sensing in line with God's word. And that's a great question to ask, a great question to wrestle with, but it is not an easy thing to do. In fact, just this week, uh, we've seen people use God's word to argue two different sides of a very significant immigration issue. So it's not clear-cut. It takes some discernment. I mean, they can't both be right. Somebody's misusing scripture one way or another, and there's got to be some other guidance, and that's where the next step comes in. As we are measuring against God's word, look with me at the next part of the passage. After Peter quotes these prophecies, understanding that what's happened is, is what's been revealed in scripture, then notice what happens next. He launches into some teaching. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. 
Uh, Skip down to verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. He's poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So this teaching moment from Peter takes us to step five. Step five, we move from from having a feeling, having a sense, to understanding that if something is in line with God's word. And Peter takes this event that's happened, he's measured it against God's word, this prophecy, and now in this moment of teaching, he goes to the next step. He understands that the Holy Spirit has the purpose of glorifying Christ. In the sermon that Peter preaches, he makes sure everybody understands the purpose of what's happened. Yes, it's something God predicted in the scriptures, but it has a clear purpose, to bring glory to Christ. The coming of the Holy Spirit empowers these apostles to be witnesses to Jesus and what he's done. So after measuring against God's word, then this step, step five, helps us bring clarity. In step five, we ask ourselves, what is going to glorify Christ in this circumstance? Or we ask, of all the possible choices that I could make, which one will bring the most glory to Jesus? Because at the end of the day, that's the ultimate purpose of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. He's the third person of the Trinity. But each member of the Trinity has a specific purpose, a specific function. And the Holy Spirit has the purpose or the function of bringing glory to Jesus. Notice even here in this sermon, Peter's being guided by the Holy Spirit, but he only mentions the Spirit one time. He mentions Jesus 15 times. So even though the Holy Spirit is fully God, he has all the rights and the privileges of being God, he devotes himself to bringing glory and attention to Jesus. And that ultimately should be the same thing that guides us. As we're making decisions, as we're looking for guidance, we should ask ourselves, how would Jesus be the most glorified? That's step five. And that's a significant question to ask. How will Jesus be most glorified in this situation or in that situation? And as we seek to answer that question, we have to be careful. Because so often the pathway to glorifying Jesus, it doesn't look like we might hope it looks. You know, like if if you and I are trying to decide, should I take this job or should I take this job? And, you know, you might look at something like the pay or the benefits, whatever, right? It's easy to say, well, I'd make more money with this job so I could give more money to the church. Well, I should take that one. Or, well, I got more flexible time with this job so I could serve the church more easily. And, you know, what's going to glorify Christ? And, And, you know, either one seems reasonable. Maybe that's the right way to think. But so often... The pathway to bringing glory to Christ, it's not quite so pleasant as that. Very often involves a lot of sacrifice. Just, just skim the rest of the book of Acts. Just see what happens to these apostles. Some are killed. Some are driven into hiding. Some are beaten. Some are imprisoned. And yet at one point they rejoice. They rejoice because they've been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus. They realize all this bad stuff that's happening to them happens to bring glory to Jesus. So bringing glory to Christ is not always the easy path, the pleasant path. How do we know how to hear and to respond to the Holy Spirit? We measure what we feel and think against God's word. And from there we ask ourselves, how would Jesus be most glorified in this situation or in this choice? And we've got to be willing to accept that sacrifice, that discomfort, even suffering 
might be the path that God has for us. The Holy Spirit continually, for all eternity, sets aside his own rights so that Jesus can have the name that's above every other name. And if we're going to follow the Holy Spirit, then we've got to be willing to set aside our rights too. We've got to be willing to make sacrifices for the sake of Christ. So there's one more step. One more step in this pathway, hearing from and responding to the Holy Spirit. And if we've come this far, we're being led by God's Spirit, we've prayed all together, we've measured our thoughts and feelings against God's Word, we understand what would glorify Christ, then we should expect something to come from it. And that's exactly what happens next in the story. Look with the rest of the passage, starting in verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So the result of Peter's message takes us to the next step, step six. And step six is just experiencing fruit, fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit at work. If we're hearing from and if we're responding to the Holy Spirit, there's going to be fruit. There's going to be results. And here, Peter interprets what's happened through the Scripture. He's pointed to the truth about Jesus, bringing glory to Jesus. And now the people respond. There's fruit. And in this passage, we see a whole lot of fruit. The Holy Spirit comes. The apostles are able to proclaim the gospel to thousands of people who are visiting Jerusalem from all over. The gospel's proclaimed in several different languages. And we've got to assume those people went back home and said, Hey, you won't believe what happened to me. And they share the news with other people. So there's even more fruit, even more results. And yet, just like at step five, we've got to be careful here, because in this moment, this beginning of the church, there's big, visible fruit. I mean, 3,000 people repent and are baptized. That's amazing. But for us, we're, we're trying to hear from, we're trying to respond to the Holy Spirit. We've got to be careful, because that fruit, it doesn't always look so dramatic. We want to chase after those big kind of results and think, oh, that's where the Holy Spirit's at work. But sometimes the fruit is not all that dramatic. I mean, even the Apostle Paul, Paul, who had more than his share of crazy stories just like this one, even he says that the fruit from the Holy Spirit doesn't always show up that way. He says it shows up as love or as joy, as peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That's not a very dramatic list, but it's no less amazing. I mean, seeing those kinds of things show up in our life, that's no less miraculous than seeing 3,000 people come to faith at the same time. So as we try to hear from and respond to the Holy Spirit, the results might be a little different than what we are after. They might be a little simpler than what we're after. And sometimes the results don't even show up right away. Or sometimes they come just like this list from Paul. We make a decision, and our circumstances might be just the same, but we experience joy, or we experience peace, or we're able to respond with patience. That's fruit. We're seeing results, and the Holy Spirit is at work. Results that show us the confirmation that God is at work. Sometimes very visible results, but sometimes not. So this pathway to to hearing from and responding to the Holy Spirit involves these six steps. Unity, prayer, 
God responds, and we measure our experience against God's word. We ask ourselves, what would glorify Christ the most? And finally, we see some fruit, some results. So chasing after the kind of dramatic Holy Spirit experience is not necessarily wise, it's not necessarily beneficial. We don't have to chase after some fake experience, some forgery, when the real thing can be ours all the time. It may be different looking for us, but it's no less meaningful, no less important. So these universal principles should help us as we seek to hear from and respond to the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. God, we, uh, we want to be chasing after the real thing. We want to be pursuing you, and we know that you've given us the tools to be able to do that. You've given us the full measure of your spirit. You've given us your word that we can use as a standard. And you've called us to live in a way that brings glory to Christ, even if that's not the easy path. I pray that you would continue to bless us with Unity, continue to drive home the value of prayer to us. Continue to let us live out your truth in a way that is uh, honoring to you, glorifying to you, and that draws other people to you in the same way we see this experience. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.